Welcome to the Highly Objective Podcast, where we talk to cannabis industry executives and investors and go into the weeds on recent news. At the highest level, I mean, I'll start with my background. I've been in the software industry for 30 plus years. Um, a lot of those years were spent early on at Microsoft and um, in the what I call the good years of Microsoft, where things were changing, rapidly growing, a lot of innovation. Um, had a blast there and uh, spent nearly 16 years there and decided that after that amount of time, I wanted to go off my, on my own. So I started my first startup in 2011. And uh, that startup was really where I learned a lot about payments and online payments because we were a payment facilitator for small businesses. The name of that company was called Placeful. And uh, we worked with small businesses that needed to have an ability to um, take payments online for items that weren't goods. So there was, you know, obviously Shopify and others out there where you could sell goods, but there wasn't a place where you could sell like events and activities. So this was all around events and activities. Um, you know, in theory, and I still like the idea, it's just that it, the market wasn't big enough. I was able to raise capital and get it profitable, ended up selling that off. Um, but I guess like all entrepreneurs, once you have the bug, um, you can't stop. And so that's really what, you know, 2015 and actually late 2014 is when the idea of, of Posibit started to come around. And, and the premise behind Posibit was, you know, in Washington state, we had legalized in 2012 and the first recreational stores opened in 2014. So we were the second state, obviously behind Colorado. Um, with that, it, you know, it allowed us to be ahead of the game in a lot of, in a lot of ways versus, you know, some of our competitors and, and obviously the other states. So I went to a show with a really good friend of mine who ended up being my co-founder. And we went to a cannabis show in 2014 in Seattle here. And the light bulb kind of clicked on as we were in that show that no one was thinking about software. It was a, it was very much a show around fertilizers and plants and pesticides and, and lighting. And so we knew then we needed to figure out what software we knew software is the answer, but what were we going to focus on? And then that's where we realized that, you know, this industry, because it's a schedule one drug at the federal level, you can't have a traditional retail transaction using a credit card. And so that was the two pieces that came together of, okay, this industry needs great software. We've been in writing great software for large companies for a long time. And number two, um, let's try to solve this cash only problem because cash only is just, it's not good for all kinds of reasons that, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about. So that, you know, positive was born and in the mission today, you know, if you go to our website, we're the leading payments infrastructure company. And we, we use the word payment infrastructure because we believe that's the umbrella that encompasses everything that merchants need in this space. So, um, you know, we think of the POS really as a subset of the payments infrastructure. Um, we don't think of POS as the umbrella. We actually think of the payments and the merchant services side of, of having the foundation. And so without having a great payments software company, we couldn't have been able to self-fund and do a lot of things that I'm sure we'll talk about on the call today. But yeah, so positive it, 2015 payments infrastructure company led with payments. And we'll go through some of the history. Maybe if you're interested, we started as a crypto payment, which is pretty interesting. And then we uh, ended up buying a company in 2018 uh, for our POS. And that was a small company in California uh, that was in the food services business. We ended up taking that point of sale and um, pretty much ripping it apart and 
taking advantage of some of the backend scalability um, of it because it was used in very large corporate cafeterias. So we knew we could handle scale, um, but it needed to, I always jokingly say, it needed to be cannibatized and uh, put a new front end on it, um, did a bunch of work on the back end, and then uh, came out with our POS. So, you know, those are our two primary products today. We've got a SaaS based POS, which is great because it's a, you know, consistent stream of reoccurring revenue. And then, of course, we've got our, our beachhead product of, of payments, which has really been our go-to-market and our, so to speak, claim to fame as we've grown as a company. And, and, and one of the reasons that, frankly, we've, we've doubled our revenue for the last five years. Yeah, so I want to talk more about the transaction, but I thought it was pretty funny that uh, it's kind of come full circle for you, that you bought assets from Akerna, and now Akerna is becoming uh, a crypto company, uh, you know, somewhat involved in, in the early days of, of uh, Posibit. That's, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the crypto side, and it's, you know, I think just for folks that listen in, it's an interesting space because when we started, um, we were one of the first ones that had come up with this idea where we would sell crypto to you inside a cannabis store. And then that crypto could be used to buy cannabis. And everyone says, you know, it was a loophole or workaround and yeah, it was, but it was a fully compliant, you know, workaround, so to speak, meaning we had to become a money services business. We had to abide by all the crypto sales regulation around a money transmission license you know, here in the state of Washington. At some point I, I always, joke about the story where we had close to 70 Bitcoin that we own personally. And as you know, the company as Bitcoin took off, I was like, man, maybe we should have just kept the 70 Bitcoin. But um, we ended up using those 70 Bitcoin to fund wallets on the consumer side. And then we would buy it back, back into our wallet. Both transactions were registered on the blockchain. And um, some people say, I mean, I DCG digital currency group, which you know is in the news. <laughs> unfortunately, in a negative way these days, um, they invested in us early because they they basically said, hey, you guys are the first real retail-like experience using crypto. And um, so uh, that that's kind of the fun history. And, and unfortunately, or I guess fortunately for us, we learned a lot about what it takes to, to be extremely compliant and understanding the rules and regulations, not only around cannabis, but obviously around the payment space. Um, and then that turned into, um, you know, what we eventually started to look at our other debit systems and whatnot. But yeah, first couple of years, it was just a, it was a crypto based solution. Yeah, that's actually how I heard about Posivit. Uh, I thought that solution kind of made sense. I think a lot of online gambling sites, what we're doing the same where you could save yourself a transaction fee if you convert it into Bitcoin and then use that to make bets. So that, that's actually how I first came about on, on Posivit. Yeah, I think still, I think people sometimes it's kind of, it, we, we talk about this internally. We, we were kind of an unknown for the last several years. Cause I think everybody thought of us as that crypto payments company in cannabis. And the reality is we stopped doing crypto cannabis about four years, well, I guess three and a half, four years ago. So, um, and then obviously since then we're, we're much different. Um, but yeah, it's, we, we've kind of flow flew under the radar here for a while, but I think, Obviously, you know, as we've started to produce really good results, and then, of course, Friday's announcement with the the acquisition on the Akerna side of some of those assets, I'm I'm thinking people kind of know who we are now. Yeah, definitely, and I think uh, even I'm surprised uh, as much as I know about the company by by certain things, uh, which we'll we'll get into on this podcast. Yeah. 
Um, but, but take me back to the products though, between the, the SaaS and, and the payments, um, what percentages is SaaS and, and payments and, you know, walk me through a scenario where a retailer, you know, how much they, yeah. they pay you uh, for, for those two products. Yeah. So I'll tell you where it is today and I'll, I'll tell you kind of what we want it to be as far as the ratios go. So um, if a year ago is about 95% payments, 5% SaaS. Now that's shifted. We're probably more like 12% SaaS and maybe 88 payments. We, as we go into 23 and we haven't given our guidance, but you know, the goal is to get that more like an 80-20 split. That's more of a traditional way. If you look at how Toast you know, um, publishes their revenues and Square and others that have both a payments engine and a point of sale or a SaaS driven model. That's usually the ratio you want to get to is like this 80-20 ratio. So we're not quite there. Um, we got some room to to, to uh, do some things there to make sure. And then part of that is just our POS, getting our POS. I mean, there were strategic reasons why, obviously, when we are acquiring now MJ Freeway in those 350 POS locations, all the POS revenue is going to be a nice recurring stream of, of SaaS revenue. So that's going to help our, our ratios, so to speak, get more in line with where we want it to be. Um, as far as the, you know, when we go sell today, we're, this is a very unique differentiator compared to the competition because, because we started as a payments company, payments was always a standalone product for us, um, you know, even before we owned a POS. So we would always go to a, a dispensary and say, hey, you know, do you want our payments? And they and they would say, well, I use, you know, Greenbits or whatever. Is that okay? And we're like, yeah, sure. Greenbits is your POS. We can be your payments. And so from day one, we wrote an entire platform around a standalone payments business. So we have a very robust payments portal, reporting, everything that is completely standalone from the POS you're running. So even to this day, um, about 40% of our payments installs still aren't using our POS because they're using our independent payments and they like that independent payment experience. Even if they're running, let's say a trees or a blaze or a Cova or something, they might want to stay with that POS, but they like our payment. So, you know, that's really the differentiator for us is, is, you know, we set ourselves apart from anybody else in this industry is that we have that robust payments experience. So we lead with that. That is our way of um, getting to know our merchants. I mean, we it's an easier sale, as you know. I mean, a POS sale in the cannabis space is a tough sale. It's a it's a long sales cycle because it's the hub of the you know, the the dispensary. And, you know, unfortunately, this industry, and it's probably very similar to a lot of, you know, just new industries that emerge overnight, is that you get a decent kind of V1 POS product or, you know, set of software. And then you get to kind of your V2 a few years into it and it gets a little bit better. And then you're really not meeting the merchant needs until you get into like a V3, V4 of the products. And that's kind of where I think we are now. And, and one of the advantages in some ways, I guess us coming in late with our POS is that we got to look at you know, I don't want to say the mistakes, but look at the learnings of of a BioTrack or um, you know a GreenBits or somebody that was kind of there early, before we built and put our POS in the market. But no, so when we sell the merchants, it's yeah, it's a typically if they are coming in with our POS and using our payments, we're gonna 
most likely discount a little bit on our POS side of the house, because we obviously, for the very reason I told you with our ratios, we make more money on the payments. So we're willing to sacrifice a little bit of our SaaS revenue. Um, and the other thing that's different for us too on the merchant side is we have a dedicated piece of hardware. Um, that's really important for us, for our POS, because if a store goes offline, loses Wi-Fi, they can continue to take transactions because our machine actually is a built-in hardened device. It's an Android uh, device and it has local memory. So it can, it can keep all those transactions in memory. And then when, it, when the Wi-Fi or whatever internet comes back up, it can, it can register those sales to the state and whatnot. So that's a big differentiator for us. But so we sell our hardware to our merchants. The, that really ranges anywhere between a thousand and fifteen hundred bucks a unit. Um, because those units uh, usually have dual screens, a customer facing screen. We, we, we use the HP units. We found that they're the most reliable. We, and so um, I think we're the only ones in the industry right now using the HP dual unit as our POS. Um, we have used ELOs. We've used um, you know, similar devices that I think Dutchie and Trees and others have used, but um, ours is, is very much a hardened device versus a lot of these other guys are, are Windows-based and browser-based. So that's our SaaS kind of model. And then on the payment side, typically the fee structure is a rate based on their volume. So if we anticipate that that store is a high volume store, they might get a discounted buy rate. Um, the merchant rates are very similar. Um, they're kind of known in the industry. They're, they average about three and a half percent. And then there's usually a nominal swipe fee that goes along with that. And then on top of that, um, if the merchant you know, chooses, they can elect or we can elect to have also a non-cash assessment fee that's um, put on the customer to help offset both the merchant costs, but also help you know, offset our own costs. So typically you have this non-cash fee assessment fee, which can range from you know, 250 to 350. Then you've got your processing fees. So on roughly a hundred dollar transaction, you know, you could bring in anywhere between six and seven dollars top line. And then obviously a chunk of that has to go to pay our costs. And it's one of the reasons our gross margin is, you know, sits around 30 percent is because we bear the cost of all the processing. So out of that, you know, six to seven bucks top line, we're paying all the processing fees, all the swipe fees, reporting fees, um, interchange, anything like that, that would come along with that. So that's why, you know, our, our gross margin tends to drop down a little bit. Yeah, and I think an interesting point uh, you make is is sort of you know the merchant, and I've been in you know dispensaries like a Cresco Lab Sunnyside where you might pay three extra bucks to use you know that the product that you provide to them. I'm yeah. curious how many retailers absorb that fee and, and how many push mm -hmm. it to the customer. Do you, do you have like a rough percentage in mind? Yeah, it's a good question, and and I would I would love it if all of them absorbed it. Um, because our thesis is that if the the additional cost that that merchant may have would be certainly offset by the willingness of customers to to use their debit card more often, and then obviously we see that when somebody uses a debit card, they spend more. So we encourage people to uh, at least try uh, having no fee and just you know try the experiment, so to speak. What ends ends up happening is. We probably end with maybe only 10 to 15% of merchants not having um, a fee that, you know, basically the customer not having any sort of fee and absorbing it. Most of our merchants like to have some sort of fee to help offset their own costs. And so, you know, it's unfortunate, but, you know, I still think 
between taking away that fee and then putting a um, out of order sign on their ATM, I think merchants would be shocked to know, number one, how their ticket sales grow, their overall sales, and frankly, just in the competitive advantage, something like that would create around safety and security and, and you know, accountability of reconciling cash and all of that. So I always tell people like cash is not free. I mean, and, and most people think, oh, you know, a cash transaction is free. It's actually not. I mean, a retailer will spend more on a cash transaction when they actually will on a digital transaction, surprisingly. I mean, we charge them three and a half, but if you add in all the costs associated to cash, you factor in things like loss or theft and, and miscounting and armored car pickups and the time it takes to actually count the, the physical cash, you start to get into like six to 7% if you include labor costs and everything. So it's this weird anomaly in, you know, in the industry that, you know, people don't want to pay three and a half percent because they think it's high and takes away. And the reality is cash actually is taking more of their profits away than they realize. And Sometimes it's just a hard sell. I mean, we, we have several case studies and things that we do to try to help educate our merchants. But, you know, at the end of the day, the merchant has to make up their own decision on what they want to do. Yeah, it sounds like that's, that's a part of the sales pitch and, and trying to convince these retailers to switch over to a positive solution based on, you know, an increase in, in safety, but but also you know, not extending additional costs. Exactly. That's exactly it. And, and then you guys mentioned, you know, in, in, in your deck that, you know, in a tr typical retail environment, cash is only used in about 11% of all transactions. What's that percentage in dispensaries? Is it closer to 30% or is that even higher, like 70%? I forgot which side of the equation it is for retail. Yeah, it's the, it's the opposite. So a traditional retail experience, if you go to like a coffee shop or, you know, a clothing store, they're going to have about 85% to 90% of transactions go digital and only 10%. In fact, and we've all seen it. I mean, most stadiums now, I mean, I went to a couple of Seahawks games this year and, and, and it's, and I'm probably, I know you're a Rams fan, so I think you are. No, I'm uh, actually a Chargers fan. Uh, uh, Chargers. But, but, <laughs> but when you've been down to so high right, or so stadium, so far, it's probably cashless, right? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I am a cashless person. I mean, the only time I use cash is basically to, you know, tip people. Um, yep. So I very sure. much. So agree that 85 to 90% easily. Yeah. So that's, that's the experience. And unfortunately, you know, for, well, it's just a reality. This industry still has some social stigmas associated to it. So there's always going to be some part of the customer base that just wants to pay cash for one reason or another, just stay anonymous, you know, but we're, you know, we see only about 30% of the transactions. And so if I go into a brand new store and day, you know, day one through day 60, I'll take about a third of the transactions and then 70% will still be cash. Over time, um, through just customer education, knowing that they don't have to bring cash in, that, you know, they promote it more in the store, things start to happen. Stores realize that it's easier not to deal with the cash. Um, you start to get to like 40% is, you know, 45%. We actually have a couple stores in Colorado that have gotten as high as like 65%, but haven't really seen it above that. And I, and again, I just think we're getting there and eventually, you know, don't want to go down the the whole legalization rat hole quite yet with you, unless you want to do that later. But, but uh, you know, when that day comes, I think you're going to start to see more traditional retail, probably not all the way to like an 85, 90%. Cause I, like I said, I still think some people want to not 
to be an, uh, anonymous on some of the stuff. And so, um, yeah, maybe it's an 80, 20 or a 75, 25 or something eventually. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. And then since we're on the, the topic of cash and ATM, you know, going back two months prior, did you guys see any impact from cashless ATM or, or why didn't you see any impact? Yeah, totally. We did. Um, and I, you know, that <laughs> the cashless ATM thing, you know, point of banking has been really interesting kind of, it, it's, it's the, if you look at the history of it, it's, it is the longest, you know, quote, running <laughs> payments in the industry. I mean, early days, uh, this, this concept of a cashless ATM was really kind of the only thing you could do. And it's always been a very gray area, right? And, um, it wasn't until the visa memo that came out in December of, I guess, 21, which really kind of explicitly kind of stated more or less that, hey, you can't, you know, this POB cashless transaction is not compliant and that, you know, be careful, you're subject to significant fines. And, and the worst thing is people could get put on a match list and be banned from using traditional merchant services for seven years. So um, as soon as we got to that point, that's when we really made the decision that we weren't going to, we, we couldn't support it. And frankly, our customers started coming to us and, you know, would give us the visa memo and say, Hey, wait a minute. Am I, should I be worried here? What's going on? This, this POB thing. And that's when we decided, okay, you know, obviously customers, this is a very big concern for them. We've built our company around compliance and being above the board and regulatory and everything. And so, you know, this is not what we want to be supporting. So that's when we just went fully to our, our true pin solution. We had that solution in the market for the last two and a half years, but it wasn't until that quote visa memo came out that we really started to see a transition. So when the POBs got shut down, you know, in December of this last year, whatever month and a half, two months ago, we had most of our base already over. So it didn't really affect us. And in fact, I would argue it's actually helped us quite a bit because now all of those businesses that got shut off are looking for a, a better solution, a more reliable solution. And because Posibit's in the, you know, been in the past payments game for so long, we naturally picked up a ton more merchants and we're, <laughs> we're busier today than we ever have been in onboarding and getting new customers on board. Right. And it goes back to kind of your point of differentiation on being a fully integrated point of sales and payments, right? Yep. And having, again, it go, you know, you can be, you could be a large MSO and you've built a lot of custom software, maybe around your cultivation and your POS, and you just don't want to make the switch yet, but you do want to take advantage of payments and maybe you've had a POB solution. So that's where we can step in because we can run as an independent payments and, you know, fine, keep, keep your biotrack because you built a ton of stuff around it, but use positive payments in all your retail dispensaries um, alongside the biotrack POS, for example. And then we will obviously upsell to our POS because it is the most integrated experience, but um, we certainly are fine if they just want to keep running, you know, us, as a standalone product along some other POS. All right, and, and let's, you know, now go back. Uh, I'd love to kind of touch upon the history of the company. Um, so, you know, something that's surprising to me, as, as I noted earlier, is that, 
you guys have only raised 11 million in, in the company's history, which is kind of insane given where you are today with, you know, as we're speaking today around $120 million market cap, uh, a leading POS solution publicly traded on the OTC and CSE. So we'd love to kind of you know go back to the early days uh, and hear about sort of the the smaller fundraising rounds that you did and and why yeah. go public on the CSE in 2019. Yeah, no, um, believe me, I've had a lot of thought about that particular decision. Um, but if you go back, I mean, a lot of our initial funding, uh, I, I did some seed funding myself, but. Fortunately, those years of working at Microsoft, I got to get to know some some people that um, you know had had a little bit extra cash, and so a lot of the early days was just some angel funding from some of my Amazon Microsoft buddies here in the area, and so we raised a little bit to just kind of get us going. But we had our first real raise was um, when we were needing some more capital to buy the point of sale company in 2018. And um, that company just, so you just uh, I didn't mention it before, it's called Double Beam. And that was the one that was in the corporate cafeterias. Anyways, in order to make that acquisition, both from a capital standpoint, but also just the ability to support it. And we knew that we were gonna have to invest in more resources to basically turn it into a cannabis POS. We went out and just did a small round, um, private placement and, and raised, with and that was the first time we actually had a few folks coming in that were outside of our our kind of tight net network of of you know angels and raised at that point i believe about 4 million and then that's when you know we were we were uh being pretty frugal and kind of keeping the company going we'd made that investment but then we knew that in order to really take the company to the next level, it was going to re require some more capital. So that's when, you know, we had this, and I still remember this conversation with my board, which is, you know, do we, do we go public on the CSC? Um, at the time, Medman had just gone public up in Canada and their stock had taken off. And then even though you know, Tilray was a Canadian company, their, their things were taken out. It was a time in, you know, 19, end of 18, early 19, where the cannabis stocks on the CSC or on the TSX in Toronto were really actually doing very well. And so the thought was, okay, do we want to have access to the capital markets? Would that be easier for us to generate cash? Or should we stay private and try to keep going down this path? And so we actually hired a consultant um, who was out of Canada, who had, who had taken companies in the U.S. public and learned a lot. I learned a lot about, you know, how do you, basically, how do you go public via a shell transaction? So doing a reverse takeover, which is, you know, probably the easier way to do it than a straight IPO. And so the it was about a nine-month process where we had to go out and see if there are any what we call clean shell companies meaning they had been listed up on the the tsx because the, we were originally going to go on the tsx the the toronto stock exchange which is a little bit bigger exchange than the than the cse um which is more on the you know canadian canadian um stock exchange so that one is a little bit less and it's a little bit more open for cannabis and some other things anyways we were able to find a shell using this consultant, um, which had been created and had never had any transactions on it. It was, in essence, a holding company. And this was very common in Canada, primarily for companies that were in um, 
mining, mining minerals, mining, you know, gold, silver, whatever. It was kind of a common way that you could go public in Canada. So we found a clean shell. Uh, we then um, hired Canaccord actually to, to help us raise the initial funds. And they were the ones that kind of helped us get the 5 million that we ended up using when we um, closed our, our reverse takeover. And I guess it was April of 19. And so at the time, yes, it was, you know, I would, I would say great, you know, good decision given the data that we had it, you know, around us in hindsight, you know, I would never have done that. Um, I'll just be honest with you. It's, it was, uh, it was an interesting thing because it hurt us all the way up until probably the last six months. Maybe it's helped us because, you know, the, the, right after we went public, all the valuations in the private cannabis sector, you know, went nuts. So, and, you know, you and I both know Ross and the trees are the, uh, that's the experience and the, their ability to raise kind of ridiculous capital at, you know, these, these nutso valuations and a lot of companies were able to do it. And I was kind of bummed because we're sitting here as this, you know, little publicly traded company in Canada. And we couldn't, we couldn't go get a valuation that we would put us on an equal playing field as, as like a Dutch or a Jane. And, you know, we could look at them and go, okay, all right, I know what their revenues are. I know what my revenues are. We're pretty darn close, but my valuation at the time, you know, was maybe 50 million and they're getting these, you know, billion plus valuations. So it, it actually was a very much a negative for Posibit, um, I would say from like years 2020 to, you know, mid 2022 even, um, because the the valuations supported the private companies much stronger, and private companies in the cannabis space could get away with these these higher valuations. Well, I guess you know, uh, eventually things all kind of figure themselves out, and I think that's what's happened recently. Is you know now we're in a position where we have a real market cap, which represents you know real value based on real revenue and a real. Um, PL and you know all of the days of the vaporware you know hockey stick um, PLs have kind of gone away and so all those private companies that raised a lot of money with on you know hopes and dreams now are running out of capital and finding themselves where they can't sustain their business and so now they're trying to raise capital and they can't so it, you know it, you could almost it's almost like this uh, up and down kind of uh, feeling I have about going public where at the beginning, I felt great about it. Um, you know, I think we came out at 60 cents. We jumped up to like a buck 20 or something. And then right after that, we went all the way down. We traded down to two cents, <laughs> which I know a lot of people bought our stock. I have different people, investors that have come to me and had said, oh yeah, I call that my, my positive house. I'm like, what? And they're like, oh yeah, I bought a bunch of your stock when you guys were two or three cents because we believed in you. And I'm like, oh man, that's awesome. But uh, yeah, so we went all the way down and then obviously now we've, we've crawled our way back up and I haven't looked today, but you know, whatever we're trading at now, which gets us back to a, a really solid, you know, market cap and valuation of, you know, like you said, 120 million. And, you know, if you look at our sales, uh, and you look at what we, you know, publicly stated was our guidance for 2022, and we haven't come out with our annual results, so we'll do that here in the next couple months. But, you know, our guidance was 37 to 40. So you look at that multiple; that's a three times multiple on sales, which 
is pretty good. I mean, right now, a lot of companies are getting one times multiples. So um, we feel like finally today, people are recognizing and investors are recognizing the value of positive and kind of what we've been doing all along. And the fact that we've been able to be extremely frugal and self-sustain and manage our company with 11 million, um, you know, up until I guess Friday when we announced that, you know, now we're securing another 11 million, but that obviously had to do with getting some capital for the current acquisition. Yeah. And it, it's uh, a crazy journey to, to point out your stock price. I actually saw uh, in March, 2020, it was, it was actually at a, a penny Canadian. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so to go from, you know, the RTO be around, 50 cents CAD, you know, now today you're, you're a dollar and 10 cents CAD. Uh, so call it, you know, up 136% all time, but to kind of go from a penny <laughs> CAD, uh, you know, and a hundred X that and, and survive. And at all this time, you know, make pretty strategic acquisitions while remaining lean is, is pretty impressive. Yeah. See, we should have talked back then, Dan, you could have bought some more stock at a penny. Yeah, I wish we, uh, you know, I, I didn't think of you as, as the uh, Bitcoin payments company. Uh, that is when I entered cannabis and that is when I first heard the name. So uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad we're, we're changing that perception. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so, you know, next let's, let's talk about these acquisitions you made here. Um, you know, I, I think we kind of get the strategic reasons you did it, but I think it'd be interesting to kind of hear about the process. So, you know, when did the opportunity come across your desk? You know, walk us through how you evaluated the opportunity and, and sort of, you know, the, the cash paid uh, to your point about your trading multiple of the 3x roughly revenue. Uh, you paid 0.4 times 2022 revenue. So uh, a very good acquisition price uh, for, for what you got. Yeah, um, thank you. I, and and yeah, we feel good about, you know, the price and and the, the history, just to go back to your, you know, the first part of your question. It starts with, um, kind of our philosophy as a company, which is, you know, we've always looked at where, where are we with our current product stack and are there any major gaps in our product? And secondarily, where, how could we acquire distribution at a faster rate than us just selling with an inside sales team? And there's multiple ways you can do that, right? You can have strategic partnerships where they go out and they, you know, offer up and sell. Um, you know, one of those is Springbig, for example. I mean, they're they're they they give us a ton of leads, and we have a great partnership with them. And there's rev share back and forth. Um, but another way, obviously, a much faster way, is to acquire a company that already has those relationships. So, I guess you know, I will give some credit to my days at Microsoft. I ran a bunch of acquisitions you know, back in those days. And, and I guess I learned quite a bit on the right way to do acquisitions and frankly, the wrong way to do acquisitions. Cause I, I did a couple of those at Microsoft and some were the wrong though. They didn't play out the way we had hoped. So we look at kind of, do we, do we build partner or buy? And so this conversation um, back in, we have a strategic offsite with our board in September of 2022 and looking at, okay, where, as we look out to 23, how do we accelerate ourselves in this market? And what, again, what are the protocols? And so that's when we started to look at the landscape. And in some ways, you know, there, it was a beneficial to us. I hate to say it that way, because I don't mean to 
to uh, you know take advantage, so to speak, of other people's down uh, downfall, so to speak. But I mean, the economy was dropping, the industry was dropping, and frankly, there's a lot of cannabis tech companies that you know were just flailing and struggling and um, running out of capital. And so it was kind of the perfect opportunity for us to look out at the industry and go, okay, where can we get distribution and fill the product holes that we've looked at? And our main product hole was cultivation, vertical integrate, you know, to support vertically integrated businesses. And that's when, you know, we looked at Akerna and, and saw the current state that they were in and started to engage with them. And, you know, looking at Akerna, they were a company of a lot of little companies and we didn't want and we didn't need everything. We just needed a subset, you know, and that's why, you know, you, you heard Akerna, they sold 365 a couple of weeks back. We weren't interested in the NASDAQ shell, but, you know, the companies that were, that rose to the top for us was MJ Freeway, just because it had, you know, a, a good set of POS installs out there that we knew we could monetize. And then when we looked at their base, um, there wasn't much overlap with us because we hadn't gone into Pennsylvania and obviously with leaf data systems, they, they have a hundred and, you know, whatever, 70 or so locations in Pennsylvania, which is great. So that was like an easy kind of no brainer for getting us into Pennsylvania, obviously Utah, um, they're in Washington, DC, which we're not in We're they're in Puerto Rico, which we're not in They're in Ohio, which we're not in. So it gave us five states that, you know, and proud or uh, you know, districts or whatever, you know, if you think of DC and, and uh, Puerto Rico, but it gave us those new um, opportunities that we hadn't had. So it kind of, you know, you, when you look at these acquisitions, it's like checking the boxes, right? So does it check the distribution box? Yes, it absolutely does. Cause it gives us five quote new states and a lot of uh, existing installs. Then the next thing you look at is, okay, what about, where's the product tech? Is, is this a tech that's just, you know, we're buying the merchant or we're we buying technology too. And in this case, you know, we really like the tech, uh, particularly around the cultivation side of it. Um, because that fit a gap for us. We also were, you know, really like the leaf data systems. I mean, the fact this wasn't the first time that we've thought about the importance of having a state system and being a POS provider. Um, it provides kind of a unique opportunity of almost like the perfect research group, right? Because you are in charge of that state system that everyone is relying upon. And now you get, you know, you're kind of privy to all this wonderful data on what are the needs within that state. And so you can build a really excellent point of sale to meet those needs. So we like that piece of it. And then if you think about Ample, Ample was, and I think I might've even said it, it was like the a little bit of the frosting uh, uh, on top of the entire deal because we had looked to Canada and we we're trying to consider what is our play in Canada and we know that Blaze is up there we know Kova obviously has a strong presence up there when it comes to the POS side of it but you know and you know the numbers I mean Canada's I think I said it on the call about five billion is you know so it's not huge it's you know the roughly call it the size of California sales um, and so we have been a little reluctant to go there but this one when we started to dig into Ample and realize that, okay, this isn't just kind of a, a your run-of-the-mill POS or, or seed to sale. This thing comes with some really valuable IP around, you know, tying into the, the Canadian health medical system, which is, you know, the only one right now that actually is doing that. 
having the capability to look up and track from a medical record standpoint, having the ability to, frankly, they have a payments capability um, where they've integrated payments into the people that use Ample software in, in the pharmacies. So once we started to really dive into it, it made a lot of sense um, to add that to kind of the, the overall offer that we we're going to make. And then, you know, coming down to, you know, what do you pay for it? I think you always look at, okay, where's the company at? You look at the multiples, like you just said, you know, is this a one times, two times sales? Uh, you know, fortunately for us, um, you know, Kerna has, they just, they're, they're, they were in a situation where they needed to, right? Running out of capital, um, having a tough time trying to figure out what their next, you know, move was going to be. They got a little bit ahead of their skis, I think, when they went out and bought all those companies. And and so, you know, I guess fortunately for us, that meant that we could put together a pretty aggressive price and were able to negotiate, you know, obviously a, a four million all cash deal, like you said, at 0.4 times is is really good, considering 6.8 million. Um, is gross margin this next year or in 2022. So, you know, when you look at an acquisition like this and you look at your gross margin of the current company, and then you look at the potential and, you you know, we performed, performed it out. It doesn't take many stores to convert to our payments um, to easily pay for this thing in literally months, not, you know, not even in years. So that that's when it really became for us. Okay, let's get this thing done. This makes sense, and you know we actively went after it. And then, you know, I, I don't know how much people realize this, but this was a complicated transaction because it involved a lot of parties. Um, you know, we didn't buy the Akerna shell that was sold to Griffin, which is a a crypto mining company, um, because they wanted to have the shell for Nasdaq. We didn't want or need the shell for Nasdaq, so it was a bit of a uh, an interesting acquisition, actually some, uh, I, like I said, I've done a handful of acquisitions in my life. And this one was probably the most complicated, smallest deal I've ever done. <laughs> so, uh, when you think of just the sheer price, um, it was, uh, you know, you, it felt like we were doing a, a, a half a billion dollar deal, but you know, at the end of the day, it was a, it was a $4 million deal, but it was extreme. Right, and that, that was probably like an investment size for you at Microsoft. Yeah. Right, exactly. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, so so you know, I, I want to double click on what you mentioned about not being interested in the shell. So I, I think uh, because of your involvement in payments, you actually can't list uh, on the Nasdaq, right? So walk us through kind of you know more details about that. But the decision yep. is to be very involved in, in payments. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, because of schedule one at, at the U S federal level, and um, you know, this was one of the things in safe banking that was kind of in and out, which was, are we going to let um, some of these companies take advantage of the capital markets in the U S um, obviously we know safe didn't happen anyway. So it's kind of a moot point, but the right now, the general rule for NASDAQ and, and um, New York stock exchange is that you can't be plant touching or involved in the direct transaction. And so, Obviously, we passed the first one. We're not plant touching, um, uh, but uh, we are involved in the transaction because obviously the payments engine is is our our go to and how we make our revenue. And so, because we're involved in the actual transaction of taking um, payment for cannabis, that's what makes uh, the Nasdaq and others um, not like or not want us right now at this point to get onto the Nasdaq. Now. 
interesting enough, we've engaged with them and have been engaged with them for over a year. Um, the requirements to be on the NASDAQ, you know, we can get there. I mean, the stock price, we, we could just do a, a reverse split and get to the, the minimum stock price. So that's not the problem. We have our net worth um, qualifications. It's just um, right now, NASDAQ has a policy that, you know, doesn't allow for anyone that's involved in the payment. So that's why you you see like a Leafly, a Weedmaps, um, you know, Spring Big, they're on the NASDAQ, but, and, you know, they came via SPACs, but um, they're on the NASDAQ and, and uh, they can because they they don't participate in the actual uh, payment. Right. So is that sort of a competitive advantage for you that you're not seeing these other cannabis tech company jump into payments because of that NASDAQ listing? I think it's that. Yes. I But I think bigger than that is the, I always say that with the moat we build around our business, meaning we we started thinking about payments in cannabis in 2015. And so we've got eight years of doing this now. And it's hard for a brand new company to just say, okay, I want to get into payments in cannabis because there's so much to, to put in place and so much to learn. This is not like, like we did discuss earlier, this is not a traditional retail transaction. So having uh, you know, you have to have an AML process in place. You have to have a chief compliance officer, um, you have to be registered as a money services business. I mean, we have a very extensive underwriting team that you know goes through deep, deep underwriting on every single merchant that that we onboard. So it's it's not for the faint of heart as far as an investment to make. And I think the general thinking all along was, you know, if I was a, you know, I'm not sure what Ross thought exactly, but if I was a Dutchie or a Trees or a Blaze or a Cove or whatever it was, hey, safe banking's coming you know, do we need to spend time on that piece? Let's spend time where, you know, our core is. And in the case of, you know, maybe early days, Dutchy, e-com, and then, you know, later it became the POS. And, and you could argue that a lot of them didn't want to give up resources on their core products of the POS because the thinking was, oh yeah, safe's going to pass. And then, you know, that's easy. That competitive advantage Posbit has, you know, goes away, so to speak. So, you know, that that's, I think the bigger thing that's kept the competition out is this moat and this upfront investment that it takes to actually get into the space and then evaluating that against when will legalization happen when will safe or something like safe happen and we as a company you know not me but our competitors do you do you want to make that investment or do we just trust that you know within the next 18 24 months whatever pick your time that this is going to open up and then, you know, we can just go sign up for Square. We can, you know, integrate with Stripe or whatever. So I think that's the the real reason why it's kept the competition out. Yeah, no, I've heard that line of thinking. So that makes sense. Um, so so let's talk about, you know, post-integration. I, I think you're expecting this deal to close April or May. Um, you know, what are some of the growth drivers for the combined company going forward? Yeah, so we got to, like you said, we got to get through the next couple of months and get all of our SEC approvals and and whatnot. But I mean, the biggest growth drivers for us, um, and we we kind of talked about it in this is okay. Obviously, conversion of those those three hundred fifty plus stores that they have, getting them you know as many of those on payments as we can. Um, obviously, for those that are interested in migrating to the positive point of sale, we're going to obviously move them to the positive point of sale um, if they like the current 
MJ Freeway point of sale. And, you know, we're not going to force them off it in the short term, but, you know, obviously long term, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to maintain a couple code bases. So, you know, our, the unit economics and the driver behind our performance is, is the conversion of the stores, obviously onto our payments. The second one is our ability to win uh, vertically integrated or MSO type deals, because now we, we really bring, you know, to an RFP, so to speak, um, the full gamut of, of being able to support everything and go head to head really against a duchy. I mean, that's really the only one out there that I feel like now, you know, across the board, we're going to, we're going to compete head to head with because we feel strong enough that our competitive set matches up. And then obviously we have a lot of the differentiators that, that Dutchie doesn't have. And now, I mean, they have some good differentiators too. So it's not like we're just going to win a, every, every deal against them, but you know, that's really about conversion of how many of those into our positive POS and how many of those, you know, get uplisted into our cultivation. And then lastly, is really around, um, you know, how much investment do we do in the state systems? And do we start to compete with a metric and, you know, a biotrack for new states as they come on? Because these state deals are fairly lucrative. Um, they're big, big contracts and, you know, seven digit type payments annually. So it's a good, it's a decent business to be in um, if you have a competitive product that can go up against a metric or a, a biotrack. So, that's kind of how we view this whole thing. And then, of course, like I said, Ample's kind of the, the frosting, you know, that that business. The beauty of Ample today is it's already profitable. I mean, three, it's 3.2 million or 3.8. I don't have the numbers exactly in front of me of revenue. And then of that, like 2.8 of that is already profit. So our gross profit. Those are the numbers, 3.2 and 2.8. So yeah. You're, yeah. You're good. yeah, I've been I've been thinking about it so much over these last couple of days. It's burnt into my brain now. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that's really that. Yeah, that's the game plan for us. And so. Um, you know, I think somebody asked me on the phone yesterday, um, you know, how, how do we measure if this is, is this strategy is working? And I said, well, there's two big points. One is when this deal closes, have we already started to make a difference? Meaning have we already started to convert some of these customers over because we have commercial agreements. That was the other part of this whole deal was while we're waiting, we're not sitting here twiddling our thumbs. We put in commercial agreements, which allow us to immediately go and sell into that base. So that's going to be the first checkpoint. The second checkpoint is going to be at the end of the year, of, you know, how well have we successfully integrated these teams? And I think that's where companies can, can get sideways is they don't manage the acquisition properly. And, and, you know, we, we've made it very clear that we're going to be an integrated team. We're going to be one team. It's, we're going to be the positive team and we're not going to run these things as standalone entities. Yeah. So I think it's, it's pretty interesting. You mentioned going up against, you know, metric or, or bio track, which has these years long contract that I assume are going to be pretty sticky because the states yep. want to change them over that often. Um, what's sort of in the evaluation to go after a state, you know, you mentioned uh, it, it's a couple of million bucks in, in revenue, but like, what's the cost to you to pursue some new state that pops up? And then, you know, I assume that's with leaf data systems, but does having ample organics in that help with sort of the, the RFP process? Yeah. And I mean, I'll caveat everything I say, because I'm certainly not the expert. I mean, we, I haven't really, you know, <laughs> we haven't spent a ton of time with leaf other than during the the diligence side. So um, obviously uh, we're going to learn a lot more and what it takes, but we know based upon our diligence, what the cost is associated to it, the, you know, the number of people that are involved and you're right. I mean, these things are multi-year contracts and they are sticky once you get them. 
we're looking at it not as much to displace it, uh, existing states, but be there as part of the RFP when a lot of the newer states are coming on board. Because obviously, it's a lot easier for us to win a state before uh, they go live before trying to displace somebody that the state has already worked with. So that'll be a big part of it um, on how we look at it. And and yeah, I mean, I think from our learning so far through due diligence is every state is different. I mean, this is part of the frustration of, you know, this thing not federally legal is it, it causes inefficiencies in the industry. And we know this. I mean, whether it's a POS and you have certain requirements that one state has, another state has you have that same thing on a on a state system on a on a track and trace like a leaf where you know very specific requirements for pennsylvania that are different than utah and so that unfortunately is the cost side of the equation i mean it's good revenue but there's also a cost associated to it so like everything and i think you know we kind of have proven this that we're going to make good sound decisions on the on the states we go after and and the ones we think are we can win and the ones that we think that you know we'll have maybe the least amount of work that we have to do to try to customize to win in that state. Um, so that'll be kind of the key. The ample piece, probably not as much, you know, here in the States, I would say, I think there's good learning from how, what Ample's done in Canada that maybe we can tap into, but the systems, obviously, I mean, just between Canada and the U S are just so, so different and how they've legalized it and in, in the way that they track it and everything in Canada versus the way we've, you know, gone still a little bit backwards here and not uh fully legalized cannabis so that's probably the main main way we're going to think through all that stuff and what are those new states that haven't really decided yet on some sort of you know regulated cannabis products tracking i mean is is that like an alabama which there's applications in right now but haven't been announced or, or what are those states I mean, I think you look, it's just looking across the the list of all the states that have it, I think is, you know, we, uh, like, yes, Alabama, Texas, um, a lot of those states in the kind of the Southern side that don't have yet, or haven't made a decision. I mean, even, I mean, New York just announced, you know, when it went live, it was what, a month ago that it finally came public and announced that BioTrack was the system they chose. So even when you some of these newly announced or, you know, Maryland and, and some of the new ones that just passed, you know, there's an opportunity still, right. Cause they're, they're not going to go live for a while. So that's where we will look at it, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, again, good question day. We're, we're, <laughs> I'm, I'm learning on this, on the state seed to sale stuff too, um, just because it is new to us. And that's, I guess, one of the benefits of having a, a couple months here before close is that, you know, we continue to get educated um, on particularly on that side of the, of the house. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sorry to ask you all this, uh, all these questions. <laughs> integration. One day, one day yeah. into the acquisition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'll certainly be paying attention uh, in, in the summer for how some of these things develop. And I'm sure we'll, we'll catch up on it as well, but I uh, appreciate yeah. the time and sort of explanations for yeah. where, you know, pause bits add and, and where the, uh, the acquisitions uh, made sense for you guys. Awesome. Always good talking today. And, and thanks for, for hosting me. I feel like uh, I finally made it now. Um, I've been on your podcast, so. You know, that... Thanks so much. It's, it's, uh, it's been a long time coming, but uh, definitely want you back. All right. Sounds good, buddy. Thank you.